Well, as we look back on 2019, the great issue, I think what most of us would agree, that has dominated uh, has been environmental concern. Uh, over the last couple of days especially, uh, the news from Australia has worsened with scores of fires burning out of control, temperatures exceeding 40 degrees centigrade in every state in Australia, spot fires caused by uh, the burning bark and, and uh, red embers being caught up in the, the, uh, the rising air, uh, sweeping ahead of the main fire, accelerating its progress. Uh, even localised weather systems caused by the intense heat so that lightning has been uh, striking from outside columns of smoke. 2019 was also the year when Greta Thunberg was named Time Magazine Person of the Year. And with her rather shrill warnings of, of doom, uh, she's been largely responsible for a, a new phenomenon uh, called eco-anxiety. Anxiety that has, has gripped uh, especially young people. Uh, infamously, she spoke to a, a conference of, of leaders at the United Nations Climate Change uh, saying, you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You've stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. Sir David Attenborough, uh, he's, he's probably the closest thing, along with Elton John, to uh, what Britain has as a saint these days. And uh, he uh, gloomily said it's too late to reverse climate change. And he's warned of civil unrest that will arise from that. So many people, and especially young people, are, are wakening up today uh, at the beginning of a new decade, not with joy and thankfulness, actually, but with a sense of foreboding because of this dominant, gloomy, environmental cloud hanging over everyone. Brothers and sisters, uh, because we are in Christ, our outlook is very, very different. Uh, we have great cause for optimism. But our world is not spinning out of control, but we have a God who is on the throne. And we have in this 11th chapter of Isaiah a, a little picture which in many ways is hugely encouraging for us in an era of environmental despair of the new world that Jesus, the Messiah, uh, the, the shoot and the branch from Jesse's stump will bring in at his return. Now, the Bible often addresses the future in ways that are poetic, and that is certainly true uh, here in Isaiah, <clears throat> from verses 6 to 10. However, at the same time, it's pointing towards a very material future, and it's a much more positive picture of the future of this old earth than Greta Thunberg and David Attenborough portray. We've got here, and uh, a New Year's sermon is not the time to go into the intricacies of, of Old Testament prophecy, uh, but we've got a number of different uh, times in view here. There is uh, a view of the return of Jesus, that the, uh, the last days when the earth will be renewed, and there is also, at the end of the chapter, a looking forward to uh, better days for Judah and Ephraim, an in-gathering of the peoples before the return of Christ. 
So we've got, uh, we're looking at the future in terms of the future of this earth and the future of the church. And when we think of the future of the earth, uh, Christians are kind of broadly speaking broken into two groups. One group uh, takes a cue from uh, some passages that seem to speak about uh, the earth being destroyed and something entirely new taking its place. Uh, so you have, for example, Second Peter 3, 12, the heavens will be kindled and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire. <coughs> now, it has to be said that when uh, we have these pictures, uh, they're all uh, pictures which can be understood in terms of a renewal of what remains essentially uh, true. So rather than something being replaced, uh, there is a renewal of something, uh, not an absolute destruction of a substance, but something which is transformed. And the word for new in new heaven and earth is specifically that kind of newness. It's a transformation of something that continues uh, it has a continuity with what went before. So, the Bible is not teaching that the world is a throwaway world, but it's teaching that the world, uh, the new earth, uh, is this earth, essentially, transformed by the power of God. So that when Paul says uh, in Romans 8 that uh, we are looking forward to a future, he says that the creation is looking forward to it with us. It's eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God in order that it can be freed from its present bondage. This earth is not a throwaway earth. And heaven, when we speak of a new heaven, heaven is simply where God is, where God dwells. And in Revelation, we're told that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to earth and the cry goes up, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God. And so, uh, we don't go up to heaven, but heaven comes down to earth. And the new earth will be new precisely because God is in the midst. So we forget about a very spiritual, uh, ethereal existence white robes and clouds. Our future is in a new earth, physically, spiritually transformed by the presence of God. So, what does Isaiah say to us about this new earth, and particularly the animal life in this new earth? And what's he saying about the future of the church? He says, first of all, that in the new world, the new earth, uh, the old enmities in the animal kingdom will be removed. And in the future of the church, the enmities that mar the life of God's people will be taken away. And there will be a victorious march of Jesus and a bringing in of the nations. Let's look then, first of all, at verses 6 to 10. 69 of chapter 11. When God first created the animals in all their kinds, he looked and he said that what he had made was good. And in Eden, Adam and Eve lived under God as stewards of the earth, 
And that would have included a gentle, benevolent watch over the animals in their vicinity. But when sin entered the world, things changed. And just as uh, sin disordered us as humans and brought in a violent order, so in the animal world. So the violence in that period leading up to Noah is mirrored in the animal kingdom. Uh, Tennyson, uh, the poet Tennyson, described nature as being red in tooth and claw. And that is what nature, because of sin, is like. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, will remember Johnny Morris' Morris's Animal Magic. Yeah. <laughs> and you remember, uh, actually, what, um, what put him kind of out of favour was that uh, he, he spoke to the animals, but he also uh, got... He had, there were animal voices speaking back, so uh, people didn't like that. You know, the new wave zoologists didn't like this idea of speaking animals, so he kind of went out of vogue. But his world uh, of animals was a kind of cute world. It was a, a world of, of uh, where, where everyone is nice to one another. But the, the new nature programs are very different. So if you look at some of these uh, programs where you have a fantastic colour, great uh, film work. For example, the uh, leopard in pursuit of a wildebeest on the, the plains of Africa. And uh, you see the, the leopard gaining on its prey. And then the, the camera slows down and the, the leopard is only meters away. And you know exactly what is happening. And then uh, in this slow-mo, the leopard uh, leaps through the air and its jaws close in on the side of the wildebeest lunchtime. And that's much more realistic than Johnny Morris's Animal Magic. That is what nature is like. God preserves the animal kingdom at the time of the flood. And after, when the animals leave the ark, uh, he promises Noah that the fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. So this dread of humans in the animal kingdom uh, is a mark of protection for humanity. God places man in a uniquely special position. It is man who has been made a little lower than the angels. The animals are subject to him. He has dominion over them. And at the same time, the Bible reveals that God cares for the animals. And that's simply, it's almost just implied, it's a basic truth in the Bible. So you come to that last verse in Jonah, and God is speaking to Jonah, reproaching him for his lack of concern, and he says, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? It's a kind of throwaway comment, but it's expressive of God's care for all of his creation. <coughs> and in our passage, uh, there's a lovely picture of uh, the dread of all kinds being removed. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child will lead them. Very familiar words. 
want you to notice that it's not so much saying that uh, the wild animals will no longer prey upon one another, although that's true. It's saying that uh, humans and domestic animals are now safe from the predation of wild animals. So you have on one side wolf, leopard, lion, bear, cobra, and then on the other side lamb, goat, calf, fattened calf, cow, children. I don't think there's any suggestion of a new order of vegetarianism uh, implied here, although one or two authors uh, suggest this. I think the lion eating straw simply speaks of a new domestication of animals that would have in the past been hugely dangerous. The domestic animals in this new earth are still serving man and we know of course from the parable of the two sons what the the fattened calf uh, was destined for. So there's still that uh, element of domestic animals serving uh, man. Sin has disordered all of creation so that man's dominion over the earth is threatened by nature itself including the wild animals but when the Messiah comes at the end of the age there will be this peace, shalom which will affect every aspect of the creation this is a really important truth we'll mention again that Jesus' redemption Jesus' salvation is cosmic it has affected not just fallen human beings but a fallen earth and the Messiah is going to bring peace to the animal kingdom also and at Jesus first coming we've got hints of what will come in its fullness at his return it's quite interesting that early Christians saw hints of the coming messianic reign of peace in the traditional uh, image of Jesus born in a manger with the cattle looking on. Now, we're not given that detail. That's a kind of assumption. That's a reasonable assumption, I think. And, and some uh, early Christians saw that, uh, that kind of picture of peace and contentment. Jesus with the domestic animals is as reflective of, of passages like Isaiah 11. And there was, in the West Country uh, of England, there was a, a, a myth that on Christmas Eve, uh, when it turned 12, that the oxen in the byres went down on their knees in homage of the newborn king. And Thomas Hardy uh, wrote a lovely poem, good to read it now, called The Oxen, which... Uh, brings to mind that, that myth. Christmas Eve, and twelve of the clock, now they're all on their knees, an elder said as we sat in a flock by the embers in hearthside ease. We pictured the meek, mild creatures where they dwelt in their strawy pen, nor did it occur to one of us there to doubt they were kneeling there. So fair a fancy Few would weave in these, day, in these years, yet I feel if someone said on Christmas Eve, come, see the not oxen kneel in the lonely Barton by yonder, whom our childhood used to know, I should go with him 
in the gloom, hoping it might be so. But more uh, firmly on biblical grounds is Mark 1.13, uh, an interesting detail that Mark includes. Uh, once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. This is a hugely uh, significant picture. Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam was tempted in a garden. Jesus now comes not in a garden, but in a desert place. And he overcomes. And there's this mention of the wild animals. And I don't think it's a, a sinister element of the wilderness, but it suggested that they were, in a sense, providing company for the Savior in his loneliness, just as the angels ministered to him. So the rule of the Messiah is breaking in, it's suggested. Uh, it will come in all its fullness when he brings his new order to the creation at his return. But here is a signpost to that day. God promises to Isaiah that there will be no destroying animals in the new age. They will not cause harm or destroy all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's standards will hold sway over all his creation. Every part of the new earth will know him and be devoted to him. And then the last part of the chapter, we're going to look at this very briefly, uh, verses 10 to 16, uh, comes earlier than this transformed earth. It's the ingathering of the church and its connection with the shalom of the animal kingdom where there is no more enmity between men and wild animals is reflected in a new peace and unity amongst those of God's people who were once at loggerheads. So the Messiah is raised up as a banner and peoples will gather around him and acknowledge him as king. God's exiled people will be gathered in from Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, the Mediterranean coastlands. And this prophecy is partly fulfilled in the return from the exile of Benjamin, Judah and Levi, but also some representatives of the, of the uh, ten northern tribes. Uh, it's also uh, partly fulfilled at Pentecost, when people from different tribes are brought into God's kingdom. But the scriptures also, also speak of a gathering of the nations leading up to Christ's return, including a gathering in of the Jewish people scattered throughout the world who will at last recognize their Messiah. Paul writes, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in and in this way all Israel will be saved. That's what we have in verse 12 of our chapter. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. And just as there will be no enmity in the animal kingdom, there will be no place for tribalism or rivalry or jealousy within the people of God. Ephraim and Judah had been at each other's throats. But in that new age when the lion and the lamb lie down together, the nations will be gathered in and will enjoy peace. 
some of the, the sad divisions that we have in the church today will not even be remembered. There will be a new unity of God's people as Jesus gathers his own and brings us into our final home, a new heaven, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, brothers and sisters, at the beginning of 2020, why would we fear? Why would we listen to the, the doomsayers? Why would we uh, suffer from uh, the echo anxiety that grips so many when they uh, prophesy uh, bad things? Jesus is king. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. Christ's redemption is cosmic in its extent. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. said that when uh, Adoniram Johnson, the great missionary to, to Burma, uh, was experiencing a reverse, uh, none, no, or very few converts to the gospel, uh, opposition from the authorities, and he's languishing in, in jail, and uh, somebody beside him kind of taunts him about his uh, zeal as a missionary. What do you think now of the, the future of Christianity in Burma? And Judson famously replies that the future is as bright as the promises of God. And we have glorious promises that sustain us. Uh, promises that exclude fear of the variety that we have around us today. And nerve us to serve God properly. Because in, in neither case do God's promises breed apathy. They actually motivate Activity, not anxiety. Therefore, on the one hand, if God cares for this earth, ought not we? We have a part to play, whether that is caring for uh, our communities uh, in their fragmentation. Uh, God sets us to serve him, be it in night shelters or food banks or orchards or whatever it is we're called to do to serve him and to be stewards of his earth. God gives us promises uh, in connection with the expansion of the church. It doesn't mean that we do nothing, but we, we wrestle and fight and pray. Uh, he sets us about bringing in the elect wherever they are. And I think we, as we begin the new year, we're called to be purposeful. I was reading uh, in a newspaper yesterday of... Uh, her name is escaping me. It's not just typical. Don't write it down. She's the, the runner. Ailish McCaughan. That's who she is. And uh, she's saying in this article that she writes down on paper her hopes for 2020. Obviously her, her athletic goals. Having shared them with her mother and with her coach, those near her. And she takes those goals on paper and she sticks them on the, the, uh, the mirror in her car. Hopefully not obscuring the mirror entirely, but there where she sees them every time uh, she's out and about. I thought, that's good. It's good that we should all uh, be purposeful uh, as we go into the year, that we 
talk with one another, with our, 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 our ones that are close to us, about what we want uh, to see achieved under God in 2020, and that we uh, go about serving God, uh, not aimlessly, but with purpose, hoping in his promises.